Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech Chat. Russ here, and I have Dr. Pete with me as well. Hi, Dr. Pete. Hey, Russ. It's great to be back on the show as always. And listeners, thanks for tuning back into Tech Chat. We've had lots of feedback as we've been asking for it for quite some time. And we have feedback asking for, uh, can we talk about ECS, uh, talk about spot instances. So please keep the feedback coming back to us. Uh, we are building a backlog of uh, guests we're going to bring on the show so uh, they can entertain you and talk through some of the tech stuff. So, Russ, what's happening also on the Summit Circuit? Well, Pete, it is that time of the year when summit season kicks off once again, starting with the Sydney Summit on April the 5th, and then there is going to be a whole bunch of summits around Asia Pacific, and then through to uh, lots of other global locations as well. So, yeah, so if you're in Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Seoul, Manila, Mumbai, Bangalore, Delhi, Bangkok, Auckland, and also Canberra, at uh, least in the APAC region, uh, go and uh, come and join us and listen to our fascinating speakers, which are both uh, AWS SAs as well as our uh, folks across the business, including partners and customers. That's right. And if you're not in Asia Pacific, uh, there are plenty of other summits, obviously, lots in North America, Latin America. Uh, Europe, the Middle East, um, etc. So, um, so how do we find these, Russ? Well, how do, how do, how do we find the uh, the summits and where they're on? If you type into your search engine of choice, AWS Summits 2017, that should take you there, and that'll uh, show you all the available summits uh, and uh, how to register. Awesome, thank you. Now, listen, we've been growing, uh, and every show we talk about something that we've added to our global infrastructure. Uh, what's the next addition that we've added to our global footprint, Russ? We have added, Pete, another edge location, this time in Zurich, and that is our first in Switzerland. And that takes our total edge locations worldwide to 73 now. Which is huge, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, we're, we're almost everywhere, one could say. And, uh, you know, you want to bring your content closer to the end user and bring it to the edge. Um, you can't live without CloudFront and a content delivery network. That's exactly, fabulous. That is exactly right. Now, talking of adding new things, uh, we pride ourselves, Pete, on staying up to date with what's happening with AWS. But a new service came and slipped through the net. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, we didn't, we've been so busy lately. As you guys know, we launch about 2.7 services every single day. So that's about three. And, uh, we didn't get a chance to squeeze into the uh, previous show, uh, that we've launched and gone globally with something called Amazon Cloud Directory, which is a brand new service, Russ. And uh, I know you had a look, you had a look for it, but you couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. No, no, you were talking about it. I said, great, I'm going to go and check it out. And I couldn't actually find it in the console. So I'd be delighted if you could give me some pointers. Absolutely. So for those of you who've used AWS um, uh, directory services, uh, it's actually in a directory service console. So you, when you click on create new directory, you will now see something called Amazon Cloud Directory, as well as the uh, the previous Cognito, uh, Microsoft AD, Simple AD, and the AD Connector offering that we've got. And with Cloud Directory, what it is, is it allows you to create a directory for a whole variety of different use cases. So quite often that's for uh, creating 
organizational uh, charts and structures or maybe creating course catalogs or device registries. So with traditional directory services such as Active Directory, uh, like, like with directory services or LDAP, for example, uh, these tend to limit you to a single hierarchy, uh, which is great. But if you have uh, lots of varying different use cases, um, then cloud directory is really for you. It's a flexible way of creating directories with multiple hierarchies uh, that spend multiple dimensions. So as an example, uh, you can create a, uh, an org chart, uh, if you like, that can be navigated for uh, reporting structures, but they can also navigate perhaps along uh, location and uh, cost dimensions that you may have set up in a directory. So when you think about Amazon Cloud Directory, it, it really it's a service that automatically scales, so you don't run any EC2 instance yourself. Uh, we actually scale to hundreds of millions of objects and provide you with a, a way of um, creating a schema, so the definition or the structure, if you like, of that data uh, that's incredibly extensible because you can actually keep changing it on an ongoing basis. So it's basically a managed service. Uh, for scaling to very large, you know, hundreds of millions of objects, as I said. Um, and it's basically very flexible because you can continue to evolve. So as you add new applications, for example, that want to use the same directory, um, but then want to have a different view on it, you can keep on extending the schema yourselves. Now, in terms of um, these large scale uh, objects and the actual relationships, um, it gives you lots of functionality around how to even um, do the queries. So for example, um, if you were trying to um, look up uh, information around a particular vector. So for example, if you had if you had an expense approval application that you've built uh, that was built using traditional solution, you probably have to uh, make the first call to query the directory to get the, uh, the actual reporting structure for the list of expense approvers that you might need to get your expense approved through. And then another query uh, to find the cost center that goes in against that hierarchy. So with the AWS Cloud Directory Service, we have an API that makes this really easy so that you can query along you know, a large number of more multiple dimensions all in a single query. So it's a very nice way of being able to uh, create a highly evolving, flexible, managed uh, directory service that gives you uh, lots of control. And if that wasn't enough, um, you can also create things like tags. So you can actually um, integrate with Cloud, into with CloudTrail and provide resource tagging. So you can basically log uh, the access time and identity of the users who've actually been accessing a directory. That's another nice way of mm, being able nice. to keep a finger on who's doing what with uh, your directory and potentially also do some, you know, uh, if you like, analysis of what, what has happened. And because you can also tag, you can tag your directories and schemas to better track and manage the resources that are actually in there. So it's a really flexible, you know, if you like a directory service for uh, the 21st century, if you like for the cloud, where you have lots and lots of different systems that potentially may want to talk to the same data pool that resides in the cloud directory. Because in the past, people would have a copy of another directory for another application and then have to worry about keeping those two or more directories in sync. The beauty of this offering here is that uh, you create this directory and you create schema extensions on top of that for each of your particular application. And if that schema needs to evolve, you can evolve with it. So it's highly flexible. Rust gives you lots of options around being able to manage, traverse, and look up information. That sounds fantastic, Pete. Now, in terms of the free tier, is there a free tier option for customers to get started quickly? Absolutely. So we've actually added this to the free tier. Um, so you can get started with um, Amazon Cloud Directory for free. Uh, so for new directory, 
customers. You can get one gigabyte of storage, which equates to about 100,000 eventually consistent reads and API calls, as well as 10,000 combined strongly consistent read, read and write for the API um, for the directory service for the first 12 months. So uh, that is probably more than enough for most people to get started, uh, but it's a very simple mechanism because it gives you lots and lots of simplicity. Uh, and you simply just you know use the SDK, extend your application, and you're good to go. Fantastic. Now, Pete, this next service that I'm going to talk about or this next uh, update to a service, it's not for you. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's, for, it's not for you. No, it's not okay. for you. It's for, it's for mere mortals like myself. <laughs> uh, and it's trying to uh, help you to understand your IAM policies. Right. Now, as most of you would know, IAM, which is our identity and access management allows you to create policies that you can then use to to grant or revoke access to certain services and the way that you do that is through json documents you now, say Pete, you don't read json natively no is i don't but i know that you do i know that you can look at json and just immediately understand exactly what's going on but most people myself included uh cannot do that so this new update to IAM, what it essentially does is it gives you a summary, a policy summary of the, the access levels per service inside that policy, which makes it a lot easier to, to understand. So it'll give you down the left-hand side, you'll have the actual service that it's referring to, the access level. So is it you know full access or read-only or read-write, etc.? Um, and then what resources that applies to, and then whether there's any conditions, um, you know, on that request, um, as in, you know, IP addresses and stuff like that. So at a glance, it's much easier to now tell exactly what that policy uh, is referring to. So um, I, I myself am quite excited about this, Pete. And me too, you know, because uh, I do have my off days as well, and uh, reading JSON is not exactly native. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's a great way. But if you do still want to look at JSON, you can just uh, click in the console in the tab and get the, uh, you know, the the more techie view of it. But I, I I'm a that. big fan yeah. of reading the uh, the new way of looking at it now because it's far, far more simpler to use. I love the way you just had to add in there that oh yes, you can always go back to the native JSON if you want, just in case, just in case you didn't like the summary view and you wanted to get hey, down into the weeds. Each to the run. We'll give people choice, and uh, if you like the the way we did it before, stick to it. Or if you want to evolve and uh, invent and simplify, and just uh, stick to the more human friendly version, yeah, you can do that too. Now, talking of uh, evolving, give us a quick update on what's happening with Lambda. Yes, this is just a really quick one. Um, so, for those of you who love Lambda and serverless, um, we've now added support for Node.js version six point. 10. Uh, so that means you can still develop your applications and uh, package them up, uh, push them up into uh, Lambda and simply just select the Node.js v610 runtime and you're good to go. That's right. We should add too that that is in addition to Node 4.3 um, mm-hmm. if you're in the Node camp and also obviously C Sharp, Java 8 and Python 2.7 as well if you want exactly. some other choices. Exactly. And look, we've had lots of other improvements uh, within the platform, as you guys can appreciate. And one of them is, um, you know, if you run ECS, uh, put your hand up. 
unfortunately, we can't see it. So uh, thanks for trying. But uh, we've actually added notifications. So we can now tell you when we've actually provided a new Amazon machine image that has a newer version of the agent. So one of the challenges that people had in the past was they would have to go back and read documentation to find the latest agent or perhaps go ahead and update it themselves uh, if they were looking for it. You can now subscribe to an SNS notification. So it's a simple notification service notification. And uh, we can deliver that uh, through your subscription, be it via email, SMS message, uh, or perhaps uh, trigger a, a Lambda function to let you know that we've actually made an improvement. And um, the reason why you want to be on that subscription is that uh, you'll be notified of the latest, uh, obviously, releases, uh, bug fixes, and feature updates uh, for the ECS Container Service Agent, uh, which also possibly may include Linux kernel updates as well, because these are all part of the Amazon machine image. So um, if you actually follow through the documentation, uh, you will find that uh, which in, in each of the regions which actually has ECS, uh, there is a, a um, an SNS topic called ECS-optimized Amazon on Amy update. Uh, if you subscribe to that, you will receive notifications. And one of the tricks that you may want to consider is um, to maybe subscribe in SQS, so a queue to the notification, so that you can drain that queue in case you missed the, uh, the notification yourself, or perhaps do multiple subscriptions and get it in your inbox as well. So very useful way of letting our customers know that are using the ECS or the Elastic Container Service um, that we have uh, new updates to the machine images. Russ, hopefully that'll make everyone's life uh, a lot more happier. It should indeed. We're all about automation, Pete. Mm. So exactly. So by subscribing to this, you can tie in those notifications into perhaps if you're doing automation into your continuous integration infrastructure, which can then simply update the new uh, Amazon um, machine image uh, into your configuration. So you can actually be completely hands-off keyboards uh, when these changes come through. Very nice indeed. There's another exciting area, and that's WorkDocs for us. Do you use WorkDocs? I use WorkDocs extensively, actually, Pete. Uh, and uh, I know you're going to talk about a couple of different uh, things that, that have added to here, and the one in particular I found very useful recently. But uh, start off with the – tell us about the SDK now available. Mm. So uh, just recently we've released the Amazon WorkDocs Admin SDK. So that's now uh, generally available. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with WorkDocs, let me just digress for a second. So WorkDocs is a fully managed, secure enterprise storage and sharing service from us, which provides strong admin controls and feedback capabilities for the users. So what that really means is as a user, you can comment on files and share them with others for feedback. Uh, you can upload new versions and centrally control that. So instead of emailing documents or multiple versions to your colleagues as attachments, uh, you can basically use WorkDocs to uh, invite them to uh, a folder, share that folder, and be able to access those files that are in there through PCs, Macs, tablets. Um, I've actually been on the plane a few times uh, reading documents on my iPhone. Uh, so this new SDK that we've released uh, provides administrative access. So for either uh, you know software developers or software vendors or somebody in your organization uh, to be able to integrate with the WorkDocs service so that you can essentially allow third-party applications for content management, content you know, um, migration, virus scanning, uh, perhaps you know, uh, 
data loss prevention. Uh, in some cases, people actually wanted to use it for e-discovery. Um, and what it means is that you know it's supported in Java, Python, Go, JavaScript, .NET, PHP, and Ruby. So the whole swag, I guess, of uh, programming languages that are out there uh, to provide you access and your applications to be able to essentially massage and access uh, those folders. And in doing so, and gives you lots and lots of visibility. And in fact, if you do use the SDK, it also integrates with simple notifications so you can see what's going on. Uh, and also um, with CloudTrail, so you can monitor the API calls that have actually been made. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, the WorkDocs service team has also added something called the activity feed recently yes, uh, yes. to help you keep track of changes and comments uh, that people have made to your files so that you can stay connected and see exactly what's been going on because we have lots and lots of files, as uh, as uh, as I do. I've got a couple of hundred now. Uh, folders, in fact. Um, it's very hard to know what's changed. So by looking at the activity feed, you can quickly figure out what's been changed or uploaded or a new version has been changed. Uh, all that stuff is actually in a single location, Russ. So, yeah, again, simplicity and visibility. That's right. Yeah, that activity feed is very handy, actually. I've used that a couple of times. Indeed. Now, what about encryption? Now, that's a, that's a you know common you know we call security job zero. So everyone should be thinking about it. But um, if we were to talk about Python and SDKs and encryption, uh, what's new in that space? Yeah, indeed. So we've had a so we've got a, a, an AWS cryptography team, and uh, last year we released uh, an, an encryption SDK for Java, which mm-hmm. uh, simplified um, the the job of uh, of doing encryption, and we've just released uh, a similar one now for Python, as well. And essentially, what the SDKs do is they make it easier, Pete, to to manage encryption so that you can correctly generate uh, an encryption key to encrypt your data. You can uh, more easily protect that key. Obviously, once you've encrypted the data. There's close integration, as you would expect, with our own key management service, but obviously also the ability to use um, uh, HSMs as well or other other encryption providers as well. So, um, so very nice. And there's a couple of things that people have asked for, especially around uh, encrypting data potentially with multiple master keys. That can get very tricky, and the SDK mm-hmm. can help you to do that. It's got heaps of examples in there as well so that you're not kind of... Uh, Trying to write from scratch, there's heaps of examples where you can kind of use those, take that code and, and build on it. Um, so, uh, yeah, very nice, very nice uh, ability to now use Python for that as well. And what's really cool is that it, it makes it easier as well to work with the AWS Cloud HSM, which is our uh, um, you know hardware security module service, uh, as well as the key management service. So, yeah, it really makes it easier to work with cryptographic information and handling those keys. So, yeah, if, uh, if you've had to play the Java version or if you haven't, um, then, you know, at least um, try the, um, the Python version because uh, it is actually quite a, you know, uh, a nice way of simplifying, you know, and reducing the heavy lifting from the development team. Indeed it is. Now, talking of heavy lifting, mm-hmm. we've done a nice integration between step functions which we talked about in a previous episode and cloudwatch events tell us about that pete sure so first of all um so step function is one of our new services that we've announced uh, late last year and yes we've talked about it on the reinvent recap shows that we've had recently uh, and step functions fundamentally is about uh, state machines being able to create workflows if you like and conditional uh, changes within your applications it's a great way of uh, potentially you know gluing together lots of microservices and functionality and the amazon cloudwatch events is again part of a cloudwatch service which is a 
a functionality that basically comes out of CloudWatch, and CloudWatch is our monitoring um, service. Uh, but what it does is it actually gives you visibility of changes. So the events for CloudWatch gives you uh, visibility of changes in your AWS environment. So for example, uh, AWS resources can come and go, the changes uh, of the state can actually come along. So for example, an EC2 instance, uh, you may have just launched uh, and it's gone from pending launch to running now. Uh, Auto-scaling events may also have kicked off for launches or terminations. All of these events will actually generate CloudWatch events. So what that means is that we've now tied in the CloudWatch events so changes in your environment, and they can now be pushed into step functions so that uh, basically your Lambda functions can kick off and do things. So you can now create essentially very clever uh, activities or flow and events uh, whenever something changes in your AWS environment, so either via Lambda. In fact, you can also push those into uh, the simple notification service, uh, and which again can be pushed into queues, uh, so on and so forth. So uh, you can build very powerful workflows that allow you to uh, look at some really clever things. In fact, on GitHub, uh, we've actually released uh, a sample application that lets you look at uh, EBS volumes being created in snapshots and then having those snapshots copied to another region. So well worth oh, okay. having a closer look at that. So in doing so, you can create really sophisticated, if you like, generative functions that you, know, you may have done by hand or may have built scripts in the past, uh, but now you can wire these directly into, the, um, into your CloudWatch events and into functions. So whether it's EBS events, EC2 events, uh, Elastic Container Service events, whether it's also EMR cluster activities, like I said, scaling, uh, even API calls, uh, code deploy, things like uh, signing into the console, health checks, KMS events, uh, scheduled events, and trusted advisor events, all of these essentially can be tapped in and kick off activities. So by tying these into um, into uh, step functions, you can do some pretty clever things. And it's also worth mentioning that with uh, CloudWatch events, uh, you've got tasks. So these are the processes, which are essentially the ways that um, things can be processed and rules. And these rules can actually um, you know, massage the event itself be before passing it on. Um, and if that wasn't enough, um, another example that um, I can give you of something else that we've added just in the last few days has been uh, adding CloudWatch events and using the Amazon EC2 run command. So again, we've talked about the EC2 run command, which is the ability um, to run events and scripts on your EC2 instances, whether they're in AWS or perhaps on-premises. Um, now, the EC2 run command is part of the um, uh, Simple Systems Manager service. Uh, so in doing so, you can now have CloudWatch events kick something off and then run a script potentially on one or entire fleet of your EC2 instances or on-premise instances, your virtual machines perhaps, um, and uh, be able to actually automate a whole bunch of stuff, whether it's adding uh, or changing configurations, uh, modifying cluster settings, um, all of that stuff is now really tightly coupled so that events happening outside of your infrastructure in AWS can now also uh, push and communicate and automate things inside your EC2 instances or inside Lambda functions. So. Wow, it's you know it's, wow. it's a great way of being able to create um, a highly sophisticated uh, you know end-to-end -end connected um, infrastructure. Wow, a lot of flexibility there, Pete. 
there's a, a lot and look it'll, it'll take you possibly a while to um, design this so I highly recommend sitting down at a whiteboard um, getting some markers and thinking about some of the events that you want to tap into um, and then work through on each of those scenarios and use cases uh, and slowly evolving and building out your infrastructure and by having um, the ability now to use step functions that enables you to create really sophisticated very clever uh, you know workflows uh, that may actually be the handlers that are going to process any kind of changes that are actually happening in your environment. Mm, indeed, indeed. So lots there, Russ. Uh, lots to think about, uh, lots to plan, and also lots to design. Yeah. Now, just to change gears, this show would never be complete without talking about big data <laughs> and databases. So I'm going to pass on the baton to you and uh, let you tell us about spot instances and spot blocks for EMR. Well, Pete, as you know, EMR is our managed Hadoop service, and uh, one of the things that people like about EMR is that it's got really strong integration into Spot. So if you're not familiar with Spot, the, the Spot market is any unused EC2 capacity that we have, we make available on the Spot market, and you could potentially then uh, use those instances at a much lower price than the on-demand price. Um, the Spot market is very dynamic, so it depends on supply and demand, so the price goes up and down, but it's typically uh, a fraction of the on-demand price. So what customers do is that they'll use EMR to to uh, spin up a cluster, but they'll use spot instances underneath, and that allows them, Pete, to spin up a much bigger cluster than, um, than they would normally and allows them to get their processing done much more quickly, but because they're running it on spot, it's not costing the earth to run that cluster. So that's all been well and good. And customers said, look, we're really enjoying this, this really nice close integration with Spot and EMR, but we would like a little bit more flexibility. So we've recently announced some uh, extra features within EMR that take advantage of the, the evolution of, of Spot. So Spot itself has been uh, bringing out some really nice features um, recently, and EMR is now taking advantage of those. So what that means is that you've now got a couple of options when you spin up your your EMR cluster, which is you can either choose something called uniform instance groups, which is similar to to what you could do before, where you basically choose an instance type uh, and will then spin up the cluster on that, or you can choose something called instance fleets. And this is where you really get the flexibility is with instance fleets. So what you can do with an instance fleet is you can actually specify up to five different instance types within that fleet. And then you can actually mix and match both on-demand and spot purchasing options. So for example, you could say, um, you know, I want some some M3s, some M3 extra larges, I want some C4 extra larges, etc. And And what this allows you to do then is because each instance type and each instance size is its own spot market, it allows you to then be much more flexible about getting the spot instances that you need. So you can specify different bid prices for each instance, obviously, because they're probably going to have different spot prices. Mm -hmm. And then you can establish a target capacity for both the spot and the on-demand instances within that fleet. So for example, you can say, okay, I want 10 spot instances and five on-demand instances. And then what that means is that EMR will then attempt to fill those and if, for example, one of the spot instances gets taken away because the spot price has gone up, uh, it will then try and fill that with um, with another spot instance from potentially one of the other instance types that you've that you've specified in the instance fleet. 
If my capacity disappears, right? See if I'm using a spot. What happens then? Yeah, exactly. So this is designed to mitigate against that, Pete. So um, let's say that you're you're running on, say, M32 Extra Large, um, and there's a, there's a big run on those spot instances, and they run out, and the spot and the spot price spikes, and it goes above what you've put in as your bid. maximum bid. Then we may take those instances back from you, which is the way that spot works. Now with this, because you've got different instance types in that fleet as well. EMR will say, okay, I don't have any more spot instances of that particular type, but I'll replace them with this particular type over here that you specified. So it essentially gives you access to more spot markets because each each instance type and size in a particular availability zone in a particular region is a separate spot market. And I think this is what um, we're trying to really help customers to manage and to use is this the fact that we do have a lot of different spot markets. It's a pretty cool way of providing, you know, cost elasticity and, uh, you know, instance elasticity into clusters now. And uh, with EMR having this functionality, this spot fleet really gives you, you know, a leg up in terms of, you know, being able to continue crunching through your, through your data sets um, at, you know, a reasonably contained price. That's right. And actually on that, one of the other things that um, the spot people have introduced – I don't know that they like to be called the spot people, but I'm going to call them the spot people. Spot people, interesting. That's a cool yeah, name. <laughs> if you belong to this, the spot service team and listening in, uh, no offense, but I will call you the spot people from now on. Um, but one of the great features they've introduced into spot is something called a spot block. And what yes. this does is ordinarily the way spot works is that you can use the spot instance for as long as you like until the spot price goes above your maximum bid and then it may get taken away from you. So for certain types of workloads, customers said, look, I'd like a bit more stability uh, with my spot instances. And so with a spot block, you can actually specify up to six hours where you say, I need to keep this instance running for six hours. Now that price is going to be higher than the the fluctuating spot price, Mm -hmm. but it will be lower than the on-demand price. So you're kind of trading off um, that you know, the fact that you're going to have that spot instance for six hours with with price. But sometimes um, certain workloads need that, and you can now use that with EMR as well. So, so essentially you what you're load. saying is we get you, you get more certainty now for running spot instances if you choose to select the uh, the block. That's right. Exactly, yeah. And you can use that with EMR um, as well. So you can do something called a defined duration uh, for that instance fleet, and that will then you can specify how long you want to keep those those spot instances. So, so we're calling out that uh, spot blocks isn't just for EMI. It's uh, also available uh, to just run your own spot instances just in general for exactly. whatever function yeah. that you want to kick off. Perfect. That's right. What about uh, That's right. some of the new, new, new versions and instances that are now being supported? Yes, indeed. So uh, as you know, we like to keep up to date with the open source world um, as soon as is humanly possible with EMR. And uh, often we will um, uh, take a lot of the newer versions of open source and then package them up and release them as an EMR release. So we've just released EMR 5.4, and that's got upgraded versions of HBase, Presto, Zeppelin, Phoenix, and Flink. Don't you love the big data names, Pete? There's no, oh, there's, cool. there's no, there's no place cooler than big data for for, for names. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so updated versions of those. And in addition, we're now going to support the R4 instances with EMR as well. So R4 we talked about. Uh, in a previous episode, which is the next generation of memory-optimized instances, which uh, are obviously great for certain types of workloads on EMR. 
which I got certainly excited about in uh, the previous shows. So what about Elasticase, Russ, um, and cluster resizing and you know some extra backup options that are now available for those that use Elasticache? Yeah, so if you're not familiar with Elasticache, Elasticache is a managed service and you can choose either Redis or Memcached. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an in-memory um, service, obviously, and gives you extremely low latency for your reads and writes. And back in October, we launched support within Elasticache for Redis 3.2.4, which allowed you to do cluster-level backups, and that contained basically a snapshot of the the shards within your cluster. Mm-hmm. Now, we've just released the ability to then restore that backup into a Redis cluster, but with a different number of shards. So That's a shard hardcore. is... Yeah, that's right. So a shard is kind of like your unit of scaling, you know, um, if you like. And so what that means is if you've got a cluster of a certain size and you might have a certain number of nodes and shards in that, you can take a backup. And then when you restore it, you can say actually restore it into um, a different sized cluster, either bigger or smaller than the one that was was the original um, cluster, which gives you a lot of flexibility um, with uh, with those backups, Pete. So that requires a reasonably complex redistribution of keys uh, across the different target shards now because uh, traditionally people just restore to the same size cluster, but now we do all the heavy lifting of um, spreading it out uh, if you've actually scaled out. Exactly, yeah, and that's that's the key point, Pete, there is that we, we, will, take, we will take that on. We will do that redistribution for you. Uh, we'll have a look at the key space uh, within the backup and then we'll redistribute that across the target shards. So can we also scale down? Is that an option? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Right. So you can scale up or scale down, whichever whichever you need to. Um, and, of course, the next logical step from this is, is it provides quite a nice, easy migration path from a self-managed Redis on EC2. So if you were using EC2 instances and managing your own Redis cluster and then decide that you want to go to Elasticache, this provides quite a nice option there because you can take a snapshot of your EC2-managed Redis, store that in S3, and then use that as input into your Elasticache cluster. So right. a lot of customers looking at it as a, an easier way to migrate. Cool. So if you went from a certain size to a different size uh, in Elasticache, we take care of the, the, the key distribution, whether it's a larger or smaller cluster. Nice. That's right. Nice. That's right. Mm. So it wouldn't be a show without talking about Aurora. And we've just managed to uh, help customers to pick even smaller instance sizes to run Aurora on. Tell us a little bit more about the T2Smalls now. So, well, there's not a lot to say here, Pete, except that <laughs> um, we're now supporting T2Smalls with Aurora. Uh, now, the T2Small costs half that the T2Medium uh, does. So the T2Medium was the previous smallest mm-hmm. instance you could use with Aurora. So what that means is that at the really low end, if you've got, you know, you're doing test and dev or, or even very light production workloads, um, you can now actually run that even more cost effectively. If uh, you know, obviously, if your workload is pretty light, you can just run that on a on a T two small. Yeah, and what about encryption? That's also uh, uh, That's been right. added as another another feature. Yeah, so from from the small end to the to the more uh, the, the secure large, end, the, the secure end, but also <laughs> the kind of globally distributed end. Um, a lot of customers wanted to the ability to um, to actually uh, encrypt. Aurora, obviously, but then copy those snapshots across regions. So we've allowed you now uh, to do that. You can encrypt database snapshots and and, uh, move them across regions. And in addition, you can actually now share an encrypted snapshot between AWS accounts as well. 
Nice. Now, the the one nuance here is that you can't do that across regions. So the cross region piece is within the same account, uh, but you can share encrypted snapshots across accounts, but within one region. Cool. Now there's something else, and that's around the um, being able to work with our new database migration service, which is called DMS. Um, can you shed some light for those that are actually using it and trying to, you know, gradually either, you know, migrate or experiment with moving the tables into a, a different database? Yeah, so so the database migration service, as the name suggests, helps you to, to migrate from a source database into a target one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way it does that is obviously, you know, reads reads the um, that source database. You can choose the tables that you want to migrate it will pick up the changes and then push them through to the target for you. Now, one of the things we've just added is the ability to reload the data for a specific table uh, if it has errors, etc. So while the actual migration is running, you might get errors that a particular table failed for whatever reason. You can actually then reload that just for that table while the migration is still going. So you don't have to then reload the whole thing from scratch, which is quite nice. So it's like a checkpoint. Hey, you can go actually from here. I want to retry again and um, make sure you know you can maybe go and clean up the original data source, um, data content, and then re-resume. Yeah, just and just for an individual table. So that's uh, that's quite nice. It could be quite granular. Nice. And to change gears, as we as we often do in the show, because we're always pressed for time, um, we've talked about deep learning and AI quite a bit, and we've also released some services like uh, recognition, for example, for image analysis. Um, but I think you have something of interest for us to talk about in the uh, the Amazon machine images and some updates on things like TensorFlow and MXNet. What have we got I there? Do. I do. So as we've alluded to before, we've released a deep learning AMI. So an, uh, if you don't know what an AMI is, Pete likes to call them Amy's. Um, I prefer not to. I prefer to um, to call it an Amazon machine image. Or if you're in the US, they're calling armies as Army, well. So it's, right. uh, there was there was a yeah. cultural overlay that we can apply here too. <laughs> um, and so that's got obviously pre-installed software on it. So we have a a deep learning AMI, and that covers MXNet, TensorFlow, CNTK, CAF, etc. Now, there's one for Ubuntu and there's one for Amazon Linux as well. Now, we've released different versions of both of those. Uh, now, the confusing thing here is that the AMIs themselves have a version, which is different for the Amazon Linux one versus the Ubuntu one. But what they've actually released inside it is the same, so or is, is very similar. So the, the, the actual releases of MXNet, et cetera, are, um, uh, are the same. So I think it's version 0.9.3 for MXNet. That's right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's got a couple of nice enhancements. Uh, so there's a faster image processing API that uses parallel processing, uh, better multi-GPU performance, and mm-hmm. there's a couple of new operators in there as well. So that's quite nice uh, if you're into, into deep learning. And then also in that space, we have um, provided a CloudFormation template which we've now updated as well. So that now allows you to select GPU or CPU instance types uh, and then choose between uh, either of the AMIs, the Ubuntu or the or the Amazon Linux one. Uh, and, Pete, and mm-hmm. you can provision an EFS to attach to your cluster. 
Nice. So the this is the Elastic File Systems, for those of you that don't, aren't across the EFS acronym, uh, which is basically a distributed multi-availability zone um, um, network file system. Fabulous. That's right. So basically what you're saying is you can get all your big data sets, attach them via the EFS endpoint to the new um, instance that you just brought up for the CloudFormation template and be able to access that data from multiple nodes. Fabulous. And for those of you that, that are paying attention around uh, EFS availability, it's now also available in Sydney um, for those that were super keen waiting for it. So nice to hear that, right? So basically you can go crazy with the uh, EBS attached volumes or reach across the network and get your, uh, your data sets and maybe train things or do your experimentation that way. Indeed, indeed. Well, we're always running out of time, um, so we've got one more thing to focus on. That but we- it is an important. It is an important thing, Pete. We haven't. We it haven't. Is. Uh, we haven't. We've haven't left the sm- left the smallest thing till last. No, not at all. And that is, we like to help customers save money, right? To reduce your EC2 bill in this particular case. Um, so this is to do with uh, reserved instances. Uh, so for those of you um, who don't know much of the history of it, uh, so reserved instances have actually been around uh, on AWS for over eight years. And what they do is they provide you know, customers the ability to basically commit to a specific instance size and an instance family that they want to run in a particular region and availability zone. Um, and you can commit to either one or three years uh, to use that particular instance. And uh, you get a reduction between 40 to 60% on average uh, compared to running those instances over that period uh, as on-demand instances. Now, late last year, in September, in fact, we introduced something called regional reserved instances. And what these provide is... um, Availability zone flexibility to make sure that um, you can take advantage of the uh, cost reductions, uh, but in this case, forego the capacity reservation that come along with reserved instances. And for those of you um, who aren't familiar with that, what that means is that when you used to buy reserved instances, uh, you tell us what region, what availability zone, uh, what operating system you want to run, and you get that discount. Uh, But if you run a instance that you didn't buy a reserved instance capacity for reservation for, um, uh, you don't get that discount. So this actually helps to address that. But also when you did buy a specific instance type in a particular availability zone, we actually set aside uh, that capacity as a reservation for you so that when we have a big rush of of customers trying to launch instances, uh, because you've got the RI, that technical reservation gives you priority over everybody else to launch your instances. So what we've done there is we've actually allowed customers to actually forego um, using um, and and having that reservation in place in exchange for discount because more more and more customers started coming back to us saying, we actually want to launch that instance size but in a different availability zone and by having it um, uh, reserved into a particular availability zone, I didn't get that discount. So now you do actually get that discount. And on top of that, what we've just added um, effective March 1st is the – flexibility around sizes uh, on top of the, uh, you know, um, AZ indifferent launch of your instance. So essentially what that means is that um, your instance flexibility now comes into play so that when you purchase a reserved instance, you get the discount rate automatically and we apply that to any instance in the instance family that you may have launched in any availability zone. So let me explain what that means because it can be a little bit more complicated. So what? let's just say you have an M4 two extra large Linux instance running in one of the uh, one of the regions and the discount rate for this RI automatically will also apply 
to an M4 extra large instance. So if you happen to be running two of those, um, you will get a discount across both of those because they're half the size of the two XL. And if you happen to be running maybe M4 larges, which are essentially a quarter of what you've bought, so four, uh, four instances which are M4 larges, they would map to that one single purchase. So what we would do is we would actually apply that discount because you're using the M4 family and uh, depending on the instance size, we will actually apply that discount. So if you bought a very large instance, but you happen to be running smaller instances in the same family, we will apply that discount. And the idea is that we will actually apply this discount for you automatically without you having to do anything. Now, Russ, was that confusing or did I manage to hopefully explain it in a, in a straightforward way? So I think that was crystal clear, Pete. And the, the bit that I love about that is that bit that you said at the end there where it's all done automatically. So you don't have to do anything uh, to actually get those discounts applied will actually do that for you when we're working out uh, the bill, looking at what you've got, looking at what RIs you've got and work out what's the, what's the least amount of money uh, that we should be charging you. Yeah, so basically now you get the uh, the best of, you know, hopefully is more worlds, and that is, you know, we gave you the uh, AZ flexibility last year. Now we're giving you the size flexibility for your original um, RIs. So basically, yeah, as customers, you don't have to worry about any other complexities that may have come along for the ride. So uh, this is available for Linux, uh, Linux instances uh, at no additional cost um, at all. So hopefully we can save you some money uh, if you choose to decide to auto-scale at uh, perhaps smaller instance types fantastic great feature well i think that pretty much wraps it up for this episode pete i think it does we're always pressed for time so i hope we managed to uh, do some heavy lifting and save you catching up on the latest and uh, most interesting feature and service announcements that's right and as pete said at the beginning please do let us know if there's anything you'd like a deep dive in and we shall do our best to accommodate that request so thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on tech chat thanks very much bye-bye Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.